Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up, police reform stalls in the U.S. Senate. President Biden seeks to expand the enforcement arm of the IRS, and the clock is ticking for a deal on North Carolina's budget. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation. Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader in the House. Asher Hildebrand with the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke. And Nelson Dower, Senior Advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, it seems like that it stalled once again police reform in the U.S. Senate. Tuesday marked the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd, and President Biden had set that anniversary as sort of a target date for final congressional approval of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, a measure that has uh, made it through the, the U.S. House, but would require some Republican support to make it through the Senate. And at this point, there has yet to be a final deal resolved among the Republican senators and those on the House uh, who would have to go along with it as well. If you'll uh, remember, this is a, a, a piece of legislation that would ban chokeholds on the federal level, ban the type of holds that were used on George Floyd by Minneapolis police. It would also end the no-knock search warrants. If local departments wanted to get federal funding, they would have to go by the same rules. It would also have uh, make it easier to charge a police officer in qualified uh, immunity. Uh, qualified immunity actually ends up being the big sticking point. That's the a deal breaker right now. The negotiations going on right now are being led by uh, Representative Karen Bass of California, Senators Cory Booker of New Jersey, and Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina. Okay. And the big sticking point seems to be qualified immunity, which is something that would help protect police from civil lawsuits. The question is that uh, Scott and others say they would be in line for a compromise, but the activists who are pushing this bill really don't want to see any change on the qualified immunity piece. Nelson, how would qualified immunity impact recruitments, retirements in a police force? Well, in today's environment, I wouldn't want to be a police officer or a correctional officer or even a doctor or a nurse or a ride inspector for the state of North Carolina without qualified immunity. You know, the principle does not protect you from criminal prosecution, as we've seen, or from civil suits if your actions uh, clearly violate established uh, civil liberties. Now, last summer, there were eight qualified immunity cases that were uh, brought before as potential cases that were brought uh, appeal to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court denied hearing all eight of those cases. There was a dissent, however, uh, in one of those cases. Uh, okay. Justice Clarence Thomas um, uh, wrote that he believes that a judicially, the judicially created standard exceeds federal law. And he's, of course, supported in that not only groups like the NAACP, but also the Cato Institute. Robert, police departments locally can, or local municipalities can reform the police departments, can't they? Well, local municipalities do have the opportunity to do that, but I think what the federal input is, is that right now we're not seeing the 
progress that we'd like to see at some of the local municipalities and so therefore we that's how we've always set policy is by starting at the federal level saying these are the things that we want you to do and trying, seeing if we can help encourage people to do those things. Let me ask you, Asher, is the defunding the police movement losing steam, you think? Uh, I don't know if you could say that the movement is losing steam. I think as others have... Has it worked? I don't know that there's even a defunding the police movement. I think a year after George Floyd's murder, the need for police reform, the public discourse about police reform is as strong as there's as it's ever been. And you've seen that not just in the soul-searching that our nation has done over the last year, but also in the very moving tributes we saw this week. President Biden hosted the Floyd family at the White House, et cetera. I mean, let's be clear, the reason we're not talking about legislation already enacted is because the filibuster still exists in the Senate. Without the filibuster, this would be law by now. That said, negotiators are still expressing optimism that a compromise is possible and we'll see if we Mitch, get there. Let me wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Yeah, I think the fact that there is still a negotiation taking place is a positive sign. As Asher alluded to, this bill would go through if the Democrats were allowed to just vote it through on a party line basis. But in the Senate, they're going to need at least 10 Republicans to get past the filibuster. And the fact that Republicans are willing to talk about this and come up with some sort of compromise gives you some hope that there will be some final deal. Great conversation, Nelson. I want to change topics. It looks like President Biden wants to expand the enforcement arm of the IRS. Just what every taxpayer wanted to hear, that President Biden wants to double the size of the IRS. Uh, the claim, of course, is that if you spend $80 billion to hire 87,000 more agents that you're going to net um, 77, excuse me, $700 billion in additional taxes over 10 years. What you haven't been told about this legislation is that it will provide unparalleled access to each and everyone's bank accounts in the United States. Uh, and it's not the wealthy that they're after. What they're really after is small business pass-through income. So that's partnerships, that's LLCs, that's S-Corps. They're the mom and pop businesses, the sole proprietorships. So harassing more Americans will only and will only net a revenue gain during that time of less than two percent. So this is a, a huge power move. Um, certainly, I would hope that it would be uh, uh, opposed. And you know, if you want better compliance, simplify the tax code. Robert, is there danger of overreach? Well, there's always a danger of overreach. I don't think this is one of those issues where you're going to have the danger of overreach because, again, all you're talking about is hiring more agents and allowing them to enforce better because the reality is, you know, in my experience, the small businesses aren't the ones that are really what people would call tax dodgers, where you see the tax dodging is really at the wealthiest level. And I think that having agents that can really compare to what they have is what you're really looking for so that when you're auditing somebody like a Jeff Bezos, that you actually have an opportunity to find out, you know, what taxes should be paid. And again, this is just money that's already owed. This isn't going out looking for new money. This is saying we need to be able to collect the money that's already owed. And after losing 18,000 employees already, they need something. Mitch, but the IRS has been used in the past politically, correct? Oh, it certainly has. Uh, I think uh, Richard Nixon talked about having an audit every year after he had been serving as vice president. And it was president. used against conservative organizations in the past, too. It, it certainly has been. And I think the optics for President Biden Biden looked bad on this. No one likes the IRS. No one wants to think about the IRS having more powers. So if it turns out that these 
folks who are getting hired are looking at the small companies and the mom and pops and not just the big big guys and the Bezoses of the world, then I think that will be bad for the Biden administration. Ultimately, you think, uh, Asher, this legislation will get through? I think you'll see an increase in enforcement at the IRS funded uh, through the, the congressional appropriations process. It might not be to the level that Biden's proposing, but it's pretty simple to me. If we want people to pay the taxes they owe, we, we need to enforce the laws that are on the books. And as others have said, you know, this is not about uh, even raising tax rates. This is simply about asking very wealthiest to pay taxes they already owe. And if you don't uh, earn more than $400,000 and cheat on your taxes, then you shouldn't have anything to worry about. Nelson, you agree with that? No, because what they're after is they're after pass-through income in these small businesses. What they're looking to do is they want to tax that not at the individual rate. They want to see that those funds taxed at the corporate rate. So what you're doing is this is an unprecedented attack on small businesses, mom and pops, and that's what's really in the legislation, and that has certainly been underreported. Final thoughts, Mitch. Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be a, a tough debate all the way around. People want those who owe taxes to pay what they owe, but there is a lot in this bill that is cause for concern. Okay, I want to move on to General Assembly's week. Mr. Leader, fill us in. Well, it's been an interesting week. I think that... Uh... <laughs> Some of the recent news will really be amazing about the budget, but I would start with the good news that we had in the House, and we've continued our bipartisan push in trying to get legislation passed, and we passed a $750 billion, uh, billion, $750 million broadband expansion uh, that was unanimous, and I'm going to tell you, again, process. Uh, Dean Arp headed this up. Dean did a good job of letting this thing sit so that we could all get a chance to look, to talk, and it really pushes the infrastructure part of Cooper's plan to try to spread broadband throughout the state. And it's really going to help rural areas and some of these remote areas that don't have high-speed Internet access because that's an under-discussed part is the high-speed Internet access that we've got to have. The other thing that happened this week, of course, was uh, there were some discussions uh, from some folks that Nelson works with that <laughs> maybe we're going to buck tradition and we might not be going through the Senate who would traditionally be starting the budget process this year, but it might have to start in the House and we may have to go ahead and write our own budget. And of course, I look forward to working with the House Republicans to see if we can get a good budget together. Mitch, will we see a deal this year between the House and the Senate Republican leadership on both sides? It'll be interesting to see. I mean, as was already mentioned, the Senate normally would write a budget, send it to the House, they'd write their own budget, then you'd come up with a compromise plan. But there really hasn't been a lot of work so far on the Senate side of putting together a budget plan. And the main reason is that a lot of this process starts after the House and Senate decide this is how much money we're going to spend. They haven't agreed on that yet. The House wants to spend more than the Senate does. And so both sides are saying, well... What is it, a 5% increase? Five percent, five percent on the House side, and the Senate saying, "Well, that's that's much too large based on what we've done traditionally since Republicans took control of the General Assembly." And I think uh, until they come up with an agreement on a number, it's going to be hard to, to see them have any kind of agreement on a final deal. Asher, what have you been following? Well, the Senate might not be writing a budget. One thing it did do this week uh, in the Senate Elections Committee was approve unanimously a bill to allow some municipalities to postpone their 2021 elections to Good 2022 catch. as a result of the delay in census data. This would apply to cities like Raleigh and Charlotte, where voters vote for elected officials in the districts they live in, not to other cities like Durham, uh, where elected officials are elected citywide. Uh, this is the first real acknowledgement by the legislature that the uh, delay in census data 
is going to disrupt our regular election schedule. So far, they have not moved the, the schedule for the filing or primary for the 2022 election, uh, despite the recommendation from the Board so of Elections. So it puts local candidates so. on hold puts local candidates on hold, but for 2022, it puts a whole lot of others on hold too. Delay, uh, waiting till the last minute to do it is probably good news if you already served there. If you're a prospective candidate trying to get organized, figure out where you're going to run. It's a lot harder to do when you don't know what the, the districts are going to look points. like. Great points. Way in here, Nelson. Well, I do think on the budget process that uh, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Uh, the Senate has made great progress on their budget. It may just not look like it in, in public. Anything you'd like to disclose? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the House, we are sort of beginning our process this week, but, but it's, it's the typical dance that you see between the two chambers. Uh, but I would anticipate that there will be a, a budget at, at the end of the day sometime. And of course, you know, the way our structure works now, you don't have to pass a continuing resolution. You can move in already into the next next year uh, with a budget and with the existing budget. And of course, remember, we have $5.7 billion in federal money that we are also going to have to appropriate. So there'll be quite a lot of uh, money bills flying around this year. Close this out in about 40 seconds, my friend. Well, what I would say is I agree with Nelson that this is um, some of the traditional dance that you do see, but we are moving later into the process. And so I think all of us that were hoping to get out of here by July 1st are starting to think that maybe we've got to put off our summer plans. So they're going to be here, what, till August or so, you think, Mitch? It's going to be a while. I think it'll be interesting to see if they decide to try to finish up business and then go home and then come back for redistricting, or will they stretch it out to the redistricting, which is going to take place in the fall. We don't need to talk a lot about it, but another major development was a Senate tax reform package, which has created quite a bit of interest. Great job. I want to talk to you, Asher. The governor is proposing good news for graduating seniors in North Carolina. That's right. On Monday, Governor Cooper uh, uh, unveiled his plan to spend about $50 million in federal recovery funding, pandemic recovery funding, through the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Program. This is the second tranche of funding that North Carolina has received through the program on top of about $100 million last fall. Uh, the majority of the funding, a little over $30 million, would go toward the Longleaf Commitment Program, which will provide graduating high school seniors from low and moderate income families with up to $2,800 in grants to cover tuition and fees at our state's 58 community colleges. And the governor sees this as a down payment toward uh, a more robust tuition assistance program that he's proposed as part of his broader plan for spending North Carolina's uh, American Rescue Plan funding, but that requires legislative approval. In addition to that, 12. $5 million will go to public and private universities and community colleges to help students who had their education disrupted by the pandemic complete their education, and the rest would go toward mental health and educational equity initiatives. Briefly, to put it in broader context, this is just another example of the transformative impact that the federal uh, pandemic recovery uh, is, is ha response is having across all kinds of areas of policy. You know, the idea of a, a tuition-free promise program for community colleges, which is something that about 18 states have implemented. It's been talked about for a while in North Carolina. It has some bipartisan support, but until now, the funding hasn't been there. This is a major step toward realizing that goal. Mitch, 
Peter Hans, president of UNC System, was very bullish on this. Yeah, I think he uh, is looking at this as a way to help get people into higher education. He has been, before he was the president of the UNC system, the president of the community college system. Right. So looks at all of the, the system of higher education in North Carolina and thinks it would be good to get more opportunities for people to be there. Another interesting note about this is, as Asher mentioned, this is money that came from the federal government directly to the governor. And the, it's interesting that the legislature has not really said anything about the governor basically appropriating money which is something that is typically a legislative item. I think it shows that they don't really have any major problem with both this program and the way that the governor's going about it. Robert? Best investment we can make are in our people. The reason people come to North Carolina is because of our investments in our people and investments in education. This furthers us along, and I'm proud of the governor for doing that. Is this program, Nelson, sustainable long-term? Well, that's the question because you have a range of programs that will be started with all these federal funds, and the General Assembly is going to have to be very careful about the commitments that are made long term. I remember years ago when uh, Bill Clinton said, you know, 100,000 cops on the street, a different era at the time, but those funds only lasted for a certain time, and then for that commitment to continue, it, the burden did fall to state and local governments. So the General Assembly will have to be very careful about which programs. Uh, it chooses to to further down the road beyond the three uh, years or so that uh, these funds will be available. Wrap this up in about a minute, Asher. I just think, uh, you know, the, there, there is an additional uh, pot of money that went directly to higher education institutions. There's major money that's been proposed uh, both through the rescue plan, which has been enacted, and through the American uh, jobs plan uh, for school infrastructure, uh, and through the American families plan uh, from President Biden for uh, free community college, universal pre-K. And so uh, not all of this is going to be enacted into law. Uh, of course, we want to make sure that these investments are sustainable. Um, but uh, one, one has the feeling that this, is, uh, this crisis has created a real opportunity to address some pent-up demands. Which is the workforce, correct? Well, we, sure. Community yeah. college is as central to our workforce as anything. And, you know, whether it's... A, and with all the new businesses coming in, the demand for workers is, is huge. Through the roof. And whether it's sustainable from a fiscal perspective is one question. But in terms of return on investment in the long run, this is as good an investment as we can make. Okay, I want to go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. Mine fits in with this discussion of the fact that all of this federal money is flowing into North Carolina. Both of the state's U.S. Senators, Richard Burr and Tom Tillis, have now urged that North Carolina... Carolina stop receiving the expanded federal unemployment benefits. They're saying that this is hurting those businesses that are struggling to get enough workers to reopen. They call this a real and serious threat to the state's recovery. It's interesting to note that a recent uh, Quinnipiac poll of the, the national scene showed that 54% of people actually support turning off the spigot on unemployment benefits. You might not be surprised to learn that there is a partisan edge to this. 89% of Republicans are uh, in favor of turning off the spigot, only 32% of Democrats. Robert, underreported, my friend. Chipmunks. Chipmunks. All right, here we go. <laughs> Chipmunks <laughs> are showing up in eastern North Carolina, which never happens. It never happens to the point that the North Carolina Wildlife Commission is asking people to take pictures if they're seeing chipmunks in eastern North Carolina. So don't know what it means, but it's a fascinating story. None of our panelists have been seen in eastern North Carolina, have they? I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> really hard to top that. Uh, report it, please. But on Wednesday, Facebook released a report on its efforts to disrupt disinformation operations by foreign and domestic actors, uh, identifying over 150 operations in 50 countries. 
since 2017 and acknowledging that there were a lot more that went undetected. Now, the headline from the report is stark but unsurprising. The leading purveyor of disinformation globally is still Russia. The leading target of disinformation globally is still the United States. But the report also describes how actors in other countries including intelligence services, political figures, shady private companies, have tried to import the tactics used by Russia in 2016 uh, into their own domestic settings. Now, uh, the good news, if you can call it that, is that foreign uh, efforts to disrupt our 2020 election, Facebook found, uh, were not as successful as in 2016. Didn't it, it really imp uh, impact the outcome, did it? Uh, no evidence that it impacted the outcome in 2020, but the bad news uh, is that domestic disinformation efforts have grown considerably over the last four years. In fact, Facebook found that they were both more impactful and harder to detect than foreign operations, and they're increasingly intertwined with the operations of major candidates. In fact, one of them, uh, called a firm called Rally Forge, hired a, an army of teenagers to sow disinformation about the 2020 election, found to be affiliated with the uh, pro-Trump super PAC, Turning Point USA. So it's good news that social platforms are taking this seriously and policing it, but it, it seems like it's really the tip of the iceberg. In respect to Russia, they've been doing this since the Cold War, right? It's just it's just more social media well, sure, driven now. A lot of a lot of tactics we've seen before that have migrated online, uh, and of course, leading the news today, uh, news of a new Russian hack of U.S. AIDS computer program, news of, of Ukraine meddling in the 2020 election. So this problem's not going away. Nelson. Uh, Biden's push for a global minimum tax, it's designed to, of course, undercut the offshoring impact of his corporate tax increases. The administration is negotiating with the G7, the G20, and the 38 nations and the OECD to enforce a global minimum corporate tax rate of at least 15%. They would like for it to be more. The net effect is to essentially bail out uh, higher tax uh, countries at the expense of nations that choose to have a lower tax rate, corporate tax rate, or no corporate taxes, Ireland, Hungary, the Bahamas. Uh, and if it's enacted, uh, it would really set a dangerous precedent for an individual global minimum tax. And when you look at what they want to do with the IRS and access um, individual Americans' bank accounts on an unprecedented level, um, the confluence of, of these initiatives is, is quite concerning. Okay, let's go. Who's up and who's down this week? My who's up is Pamela Cashwell, who had her confirmation hearing in the Senate this week to be the secretary of the Department of Administration. Very interesting that she will be the first American Indian woman to serve in a governor's cabinet. And uh, in that role, will actually oversee the, the council that deals with, with the American Indians in North Carolina. My who's down, the Constitution and Green parties. They are running out of time to submit the petition signatures they need to stay on the North Carolina ballot. They need about 14,000 signatures by June 12th. Why is that? Well, there, there are rules about how you could be on the ballot, and you have to get a certain number of votes to remain on the ballot. So the Libertarian Party gets enough votes to maintain its spot. The Constitution and Green parties haven't had enough votes, so they have to go back through the process then of getting, uh, of getting the signatures. Robert, who's up and who's down this week, my friend? Up this week's President Biden. His approval rating has gone to 62% in light of how he shepherded us through the end of this pandemic. And who's down or what's down are vaccinations. They've reached a plateau and with just under half of adults fully vaccinated, it makes a lot of us concerned about what's going to happen for trying to get to herd immunity. But some people think we are going to herd immunity, right? 
Yeah, I mean, there are some who suggest that based on the number of cases that we've had, because once you've had COVID, that means that you, you have some antibodies that are protecting you and the number of vaccinations that together were probably at herd immunity. I think that's going to be a scientific debate that'll probably last longer than the pandemic. Asher, who's up and who's down this week? Up at least ever so slightly. Chances that uh, Senate Democrats in Washington will amend the Senate rules uh, to reform the filibuster, make it easier for legislation to come to the floor if, as is widely expected. Be careful what you wish for. If, as is widely <laughs> respected, Republicans choose to filibuster today, uh, the bill creating a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attacks. Uh, down uh, international democratic norms after the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, hijacked a civilian aircraft to capture a, a domestic political opponent. Uh, as Ann Applebaum writes in The Atlantic this week, this sets a dangerous precedent that other dictators are going to be tempted to follow. Great catch. Who's up and who's down this week? Uh, who's up? Ethiopia. They awarded a multi-billion dollar 5G contract to a U.S.-backed uh, consortium led by the U.K.'s uh, Vitaphone group. They beat out a Chinese-backed bid uh, involving Huawei. So uh, Ethiopia chose uh, the U.S.'s friends and family plan. So I think that's wise on their part. <laughs> who's down is the Wuhan Institute of uh, Virology. 18 prominent biologists, uh, including UNC's Dr. Ralph Barrick, the world's foremost coronavirus researcher, are calling for a transparent, independent okay. investigation into the source of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that lab is a um, uh, should be looked at as a potential and source. And by the way, President Biden's administration is all over that too, calling for an independent investigation from the World Health, or Health Organization. Yes, the, the calls are growing and China is still refusing to cooperate. Okay, headline next week, Mitch. With one month left in current budget year, time's running short for a deal by July 1st. Robert, headline next week. I would say that the legislature is going to start to heat up during the summer because we will be in our budget negotiations. Headline next week, Asher. With apologies, Biden's infrastructure negotiations with Senate Republicans run out of gas, increasing pressure on Democrats to take the fast lane toward enacting a partisan bill. Republicans want to use the $700 billion of unspent COVID money, correct? That's right, and it's putting, uh, putting uh, Congress and the administration in a real bind because that would come out of state and local coffers. Headline next week. Inflation fears grow. Okay, great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by... NC Realtors. State Employees Association of North Carolina. Mary Louise and John Burris. Reifenberg Construction. Stefan Gleason. And Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.